X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, February the 15th, and it's a cold one. It's a great day to subscribe to The Local. It's a great day to listen to old locals. Meanwhile, as ice is coming down off the roofs of your neighbors off the trees and cutting down power lines, yesterday, back in the day, we celebrate Oregon's birthday, February 14th. Oregon celebrated its 162nd birthday. And what a year it was. In case of pandemic, economic crisis for many, and a bunch of wildfires weren't enough, we now have a winter ice storm. But we've never been more technologically prepared. Yesterday, back in the day, February 14, 1859, President James Buchanan signed the paperwork admitting Oregon as a state into the United States of America. As we've talked about before, the proposed state constitution prohibited slavery, but also excluded black residents. Both of those clauses were controversial for different constituencies in the United States Congress. Happy birthday, Oregon. It's a cold one. Today, back in the day, February 15, 1934, the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, or OLCC, opened their doors. Permission to distribute liquor was granted to the OLCC shortly after prohibition ended in 1933. Now the OLCC even oversees the distribution of marijuana. February is Black History Month. We're celebrating by honoring the legacy of historic black Oregonians. Today, we honor Abner and Sidna Francis. They are abolitionists who fought for equality in New Jersey, British Columbia, and Oregon. In 1851, Abner Francis came to Oregon, was quickly targeted by the state's exclusion laws, which prohibited African Americans from inhabiting the state. Over 200 people successfully petitioned to exempt the family from expulsion. While in Oregon, the Francis family operated a mercantile shop, amassed $36,000 in wealth. By the way, that's about a million dollars today. Today, we have an interview with Joel Iboa, founding executive director of Oregon Just Transition Alliance. Excellent. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Snowstorms, snowstorms, and more snowstorms. Governor, her name's Kate Brown, declared a state of emergency on Saturday for the greater Portland area. Ice storm warnings took effect on Sunday in Portland and around the northwest. Temperatures are expected to rise today to the mid-40s. That said, about 200,000 customers were left without power on Sunday. The peak power outage on Saturday, 253,000 PGE users. Does PGE ever get critiqued? Anybody ever look into whether or not that's a good number of power outages or if there should be more resources spent on line updates and tree trimming and the kind of things that prepare for an ice storm? Time was, the fight over public power was the bitterest and biggest political feud in Oregon. In urban areas, private power won. PGE, Pacific Ord, Northwest Natural Gas became some of the biggest companies in the Northwest. Are they doing a good job? How do we know? I'm just curious. If you have questions or comments on this or other topics, you can email the local at xray.fm. X-ray. As for PGE, a spokesperson said the outages might last through the weekend, but promised that, I'm quoting, we have more than 600 PGE and contract personnel responding to the storm. It is all hands on deck. For an updated list of warming shelters across Oregon, listeners can visit 211info.org. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Sunday, the Oregon Health Authority announced 254 new cases of COVID-19. Oregon has had a total of 250,281 cases. There were zero new deaths. Our death toll remains at 2,137. 7,206 new vaccines were added to the state's registry. 
a total of 677,194 cumulative first and second doses have been administered in Oregon. But vaccine distribution has gotten interrupted by the weather. The convention center vaccination effort was closed for the third day in a row on Sunday. Portland officials have been urging residents to avoid traveling around the city as ice and snow have made the streets especially dangerous. As a part of this advisory, the convention center was closed for the third day in a row on Sunday. The center has been a core vaccination location in Portland, giving thousands of people shots every day. The Portland International Airport, the other major vaccination site, also canceled its operations for the weekend. Around 6,100 appointments for vaccinations were canceled. OHSU announced that those cancellations would be made up on February 18th and 19th. Portland businesses are expecting the pandemic recession to last into the summer. USS Census Bureau has been tracking the economic outlook of small business owners since April of last year. According to the most recent survey taken in January, half the businesses believed that the recession caused by the pandemic would last six more months. A third of business owners reported that COVID had a large negative effect on them and their businesses. These results for Portland fall in line with the survey taken last summer. When that survey was conducted, however, business owners in most of the cities expected a shorter and less severe recession. Now most of the country is on the same page as Portland. A national average of 46% of business owners expect a long recession. The states reporting the most severe economic impacts also tended to have the highest fatality rates in January. Those states included New Jersey, New York, and Rhode Island. Oregon ranked 49th among 56 states and territories in deaths per capita. Survey was conducted in the middle of a massive spike in Oregon cases in January, and since then, infections have dropped dramatically, with February seeing the least hospitalizations and deaths in months. A new bill would help Oregon cities create crisis intervention teams. A new bill proposed to the state legislature is looking to expand a program that's been successful in Eugene. CAHOOTS is a public safety program in Eugene sponsored by the White Bird Clinic. The new bill would allocate $10 million to fund local two-person teams, which may be a combination of EMTs and social workers. State funds would provide up to 50% in matching grants for local governments to start their own crisis teams. The teams would respond to mental health crises, suicide threats, and help conflict resolution as an alternative to police. The legislation is working in parallel with a Southern Oregon group named Real Solutions Coalition. The group has been working on creating their own crisis response teams in Jackson County for over a year. The bill is co-sponsored by Ashland Democratic Representative Pam Marsh. It would also help fund shelters and sobering facilities. The Hillsboro Hops have signed a 10-year deal with the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Hillsboro team is hopping, see what we did there, to Major League Baseball's new professional development league, which is replacing the current minor league. The Hops signed a 10-year deal to serve as the single-A affiliate for the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Hops will now play 132 games a year, nearly double the previous schedule of 76 games a year. They join 119 other teams as part of the Professional Development League. Eugene will also be getting a team that will be an affiliate to the San Francisco Giants. The new league hopes to give players an opportunity to stay on their teams for longer periods of time and also increase the chance that future big leaguers will play on a given team. And finally, some good news. The weekend snow 
turned Northwest Portland into a racetrack. After the city was covered in a blanket of snow, residents of Northwest Portland held an impromptu race. The Stumptown Berkbiner, or Berkey, saw locals putting on their cross-country skis to enjoy the snow. Participant Noel Johnson pointed out that, quote, it's like one of the most charming parts about the city, that we can't handle snow, so let's just go into it. I love it. The last Berkey took place after the massive snowfall of 2017, if the first happened in 2008. The race started at the corner of Northwest Cooch and 11th in downtown and went all the way to Chapman Park. And, and that that's is today's, today's Quick, Quick Six, Six Local, Local Rundown. Rundown. Thanks to Brian Miller for writing up the Quick Six. X-Ray. This is your weekly City Council update. Last Wednesday, Council held two sessions. The first saw the battle continue for the Hyatt Place building, a proposed 23-story building in the Pearl District. This time, the council adopted the findings of the Design Commission's decision to approve the building with conditions. During the first reading, which occurred about a month ago, many community members addressed the council to express their dissatisfaction with the project, the main argument being the tower would be too large for the Pearl District neighborhood. The Design Commission was brought on to suggest updates that would make the building fit better within the context of the neighborhood. Because the Hyatt Building adopted all suggestions, the Council moved the project forward another step. Following, the Council approved five contracts from the Office of Finance. Contracts at the lowest bid were needed to complete better NATO improvements to Gabriel Park and other general construction projects. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty voted no on two of them, explaining she was disappointed in the lack of equity in contracting. The City of Portland adopted a subcontractor equity program requiring 20% utilization of certified disadvantaged minority women emerging or service-disabled veteran-owned businesses. Commissioner Hardesty explained that she did not see these contracts working towards that goal. During the PM session, Council met to hear presentations regarding the historic qualifications of the Broadway sign in downtown Portland. The building, which used to house a theater, is being turned into retail space, making the sign irrelevant. The Design Commission suggested to remove it. Community members attempted to appeal the decision, arguing the sign held historic significance and lit the neighborhood well. Council ultimately denied the appeal, setting the sign up isn't the original one. Mayor Ted Wheeler also expressed he found the sign ugly. That's it for the City Council update. This coming Wednesday, Council will discuss parks budget items. More information, including agendas and virtual meetings, can be found at portlandoregon.gov backslash auditor. X-ray. Up next, we have founding executive director of the Oregon Just Transition Alliance, Joel Iboa. The Just Transition Alliance is focused on the transition of communities and workers from unsafe workplaces and environments to healthy, viable communities with a sustainable economy. Here are Joel Iboa and X-Ray's Carly Quadras with more. Oregon has already committed to drastically reducing carbon emissions by 2030, and Portland has committed to 100% renewable energy by 2050. Now the question is, how do we get there? Here to provide some insight is Joel Iboa, 
executive director of the Oregon Just Transition Alliance. The Oregon Just Transition Alliance is a coalition of groups from across Oregon advocating for racially and economically ju- a racially and economically just transition to sustainable living. We'll talk about the complicated history of climate legislation in Oregon, environmental equity, and some proposed bill in this upcoming legislative session. Joel, good morning. Good morning. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. We're so glad to have you. Mm -hmm. So excited. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I want to start with your broader vision for an Oregon Green New Deal, and then we'll get into some of the nitty gritty of the proposed bills. Uh, So the OJTA has a policy package ready to go in 2019, but it didn't pass. We'll get back to that in a moment. Since 2019, you've engaged in a lot of community outreach, especially with marginalized communities, asking people what they think a just energy transition should like look like. What kinds of changes have been made to the policy package since 2019? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. So just for as a quick background, right, the, the Oregon Just Transition Alliance uh, started back in 2017, and it was a... Uh, originally intended, right, to be of a coalition of organizations and communities across the state, as you mentioned, fighting for racial, economic, and climate justice. And the OJTA for a long time was housed within Opal Environmental Justice, Oregon. Um, and it and it started out, right, as like a conversation. So I actually was part of that first Just Transition Assembly um to have a conversation with other Oregonians, like what does this look like in Oregon, right? And so for the next three years, um, we had these three-day retreats as well as webinars um, with frontline community organizations and allies to sort of like build the shared analysis about what what the current ecological crisis we face, as well as what kind of strategies can we implement for a just transition, right? And um, in 2019 is when members of OJTA came together uh, to put together a platform for an Oregon Green New Deal. And so this living document was created. Uh, Of course, you know, as we hop into 2020, that's when we started to put these things into practice a little bit more. And we organized a statewide Oregon Green New Deal listening tour, right, hosting. But of course, we had then COVID hit. So we originally intended to go across the state um, but then we had to do it virtually, right? And out of that came sort of these three big policy priorities, which was through that that Oregon Green New Deal listening tour, folks expressed to us frustration with our energy systems. And that's how sort of this iteration of, of, of our, or that's how the Oregon Clean Energy Opportunity Campaign was born, was out of us going across the state and listening to community members. Yeah, so can you walk us through those three main policy uh, items? Definitely. So we have, as part of the Oregon Clean Energy Opportunity Campaign, right, we basically know that uh, last year brought a ton of hardships for Oregon, right? We, like every month it was something new. And, uh, you know, right now, as we're sitting here in February of 2021, much of what was true back then is true now. Right, people are struggling to pay bills. We are still continuing to go through and ravaging through a global pandemic. Um, we had a summer, a summer slash fall of, of unprecedented wildfire smoke, 
um, that people have had outside in their homes all across Oregon. And people are continuing to lose like income, right? And so that's just why we launched, you know, the Oregon Clean Energy Opportunity. And we have got three bills and I'll get into them. Um, but essentially, right, like our goal is to reduce people's energy bills um, where we want to support home upgrades and can make sure and do our part to keep Oregon families healthy, create good good jobs and, and clean energy projects across Oregon, right? And so as part of that three bill slate, um, we've got two bills specifically around people's people's homes, right? Like people's home base. Because right now the reality is like coming up here in a year, right? It was March 23rd, 2020 when Governor Brown signed the executive order. And I remember that date because it's my brother's birthday. Um, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> my brother turned, I know, right? He turned 18 years old. On March twenty third, he turned eighteen too. I you know, yes. Yeah, so my yeah, my brother, my brother was part of the twenty twenty high school class. Mm-hmm. Didn't get graduation, didn't get a high school prom. But I digress, right? I, I remember that date super clearly, and we're coming up on on a year anniversary of that. And the reality that that that's really presented to us is that everyone's stuck at home, right? We can't. I mean, yeah, you can go on walks here and there, but you can't see your friends. You can't go out and do these things. So really, our entire world is our home and and as such right i think one of the conversations one of the things i've heard about this pandemic is that we're all in the same boat together and the reality is right i'm sure you've heard this before and other folks listening i've heard before is that some of us are drowning some of us aren't even in the boat some of us are drowning and some of us are in a yacht right mm-hmm. waiting this thing out and so how do we even in the playing field and and two over the our three bills i think address that right the first one is a bill on energy affordability, right? We want to decrease utility costs for families already struggling during this pandemic and economic recession. Um, and we want to we establish a low income utility rate class. And that's House Bill 2475, right? The second component of trying to bolster up this boat, right? Take the folks that are drowning out of the water um, is our Healthy Homes Bill. And this bill will support home upgrades to help improve the health of families across Oregon, right? So if you've got mold in your apartment or home or leaky windows, or if you need more insulation in your walls, or you've got a, a, a leak in your roof, right? Those things should be fixed. And you shouldn't, uh, if you aren't able to, you should be able to, to access those repairs, even if you are a renter, um, right? Because at the end of the day, when you're renting, it's still your home. And so those two bills, I think, will bolster up people's boats as we continue to to wait on this pandemic, right? The energy affordability bill and the healthy homes bill. And then our final bill is 100% clean energy for all, right? And, and what we really want here is to create good local jobs in the renewable energy sector um, that incentivize local projects that are really good for our communities here in Oregon and at the same time reduce pollution, right? Because uh, our, our goal of this bill is to achieve 100% um, clean energy as soon as possible, and that's House Bill 2995. Mm-hmm. So those are our, those are those are the three legs of the Oregon Clean Energy Opportunity Campaign, and we really think it sets us on the right path, not just for for Oregon as a, uh, a as a, a leader and example for the country, um, but also you know supporting Oregonians. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about clean energy for all. I'm wondering, how does this bill incentivize and protect workers? 
Perfect. Well, thank you. I appreciate that question. You know, I think, you know, for us, right, like I said, right now with COVID-19 wildfires and, and like loss of income, there's uh, never been more a more important time for energy policy that helps us all recover and build back, especially those who have hit the hardest, right? So what we want to do is like in this bill is, is develop an economic development uh, plan um, that also includes strong labor standards. Because in the past, what happens, right, is we have economic develop pro- development projects. Um, in this case, right, it would be around creating green, like green infrastructure, green energy infrastructure. But the thing is, someone has to do that work, right? So what's happened in the past is that these things happen, but there is no um, strong labor standards, right? And so what you end up with is a situation in which the lowest bidder or subcontractors will get um, will get a job, right? or um, in a lot of construction projects across Portland, in Eugene and Salem, we've had construction projects in which H2A and H2B workers are contracted and abused. And those are right migrant workers that are pulled out of Mexico and Central America, um, brought here and you know sort of are paid a wage or and, and worked really hard. And there's a lot of sort of abuse that happens um, all in the name of building a project very quickly. And so I think our goal with this is, yes, we want economic opportunity, but we really are asking the tough question, like economic opportunity for who? And, and, our, and the answer needs to be economic opportunity for um, for Oregonians, you know, and, and making sure that they're being paid a living wage and that they're getting all the health benefits that they need. Mm-hmm. This is Carly Quadros, and I'm speaking with Joel Aboa of the Oregon Just Transition Alliance. Uh, So we have a couple minutes left. Infrastructure for renewable energy is obviously very important to this transition, but paradoxically, creating that infrastructure is going to cause a lot of emissions. How long will it take to actually see the benefits of renewable energy infrastructure take effect? Yeah, that's a really good question. I want to quickly finish up on the, the my last point, which oh, right, yeah. I think part of this, I think part of this, right, is like, and this also, this also answers part of your question, and that really is around making sure these are community-based energy projects. Mm-hmm. So right now, our energy gets sort of Oregon. Oregon's really interesting in that um, we are, and uh, right, so the question obviously gets asked, like, why clean energy and not fossil fuels, right? And like you just mentioned, how long is this going to take for us to see a benefit? And currently, right, Oregon is a net importer of fossil fuel energy. However, we're a net exporter of renewable energy. Interesting. So any new fossil fuel power plant developments in Oregon economies will, in Oregon will benefit other states' economies more than our own. Whereas clean energy means local benefits to Oregon family. And again, I really want to emphasize this point around local, right? Because mm-hmm. it takes, like you said, it takes emissions, it takes resources, and, um, it takes a lot to get the power that we currently have to power our homes, our businesses, and our places of worship and play, right? And so I think our idea too is also creating a disaster resilience um, energy system that includes local generation as well as ownership to increase right our independence so that you know we've seen cases in the past of massive power shortages right you've heard about massive power shortages in california and in other states and part of our goal right around this is not just to reduce emissions but also like when you do local generation one you're reducing emissions and two um 
if not if when more disasters happen in our future we'll be more resilient a little bit more independent and people won't have to go through as many power shortages all right we are running out of time i would really love to continue this discussion so maybe we can have it <laughs> <Me> on <again>. <laughs> All right, that was Joel Ubo. Oh, I'm sorry. How can people find out more about the Oregon Just Transition Alliance and what you do? Sure. So folks can visit us at ojta.org. And of course, we've got the Oregon Clean Energy Opportunity Campaign. And you can learn more about this campaign at cleanenergyoregon.org. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. That was Joel Iboa, Executive Director of the Oregon Just Transition Alliance. Thanks to the whole team, and today special thanks to writer Brian Miller. Thanks to Joel for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.